So my favorite quote is by Maya Angelou. I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget the way you made them feel. Hi, you're listening to the Launch with Sanyam podcast, where we help you define your inner champion. On today's episode, you'll hear from Tarang Ming. Tarang is the chairman and CEO of Elf Cosmetics, an international cosmetics brand. Listen for Tarang's advice on facing hardships as well as finding a good mentor. Enjoy. So Tarang, let's help our listeners get to know you real fast. Fill in the blank for me. If I really know you, I would know. You know that I'm of Indian ethnicity, uh, born in East Africa, raised in the U.S. as an immigrant. Um, most of my professional career was in large consumer packaged goods companies. I was at P&G, part of the team that relaunched Pantene in the early 90s. We took over as a $50 million business, created a $2 billion market leader. I've worked every major consumer sector since. I'm passionate about building brands. The best way I know how you build brands is you lead the innovation in the category. But most what I love doing is assembling high-performance teams. I take great pride in never having a business. We haven't grown many multiples of the category. Always attribute it back to the team that we're able to recruit in, motivate, and really get to perform well. Uh, so there's a couple things. Well, that's it's it's wonderful because in your story is... It's also a personal story of diversity. Indian ethnicity, born in East Africa, immigrated to the U.S. And I know building diversity and inclusion is a strategic imperative for you at Elf Beauty Cosmetics. Tell me more about, tell us more about that. Sure. So a little bit about Elf. Elf is um, in the cosmetic space. We were founded 14 years ago as an e-commerce company selling cosmetics over the Internet for $1. Uh, yeah, just $1. Now, since we've since migrated to other price points and other channels, the core remains the same. We make high-quality cosmetics at an extraordinary everyday value. Our price, average prices are still only $3.50. But the most important thing we do is engage young, diverse makeup enthusiasts. These are the women that are driving the entire category. So we want to make sure that our company reflects the consumers that we serve. So I take great pride in 85% of our workforce are women, over 75% are millennial, over 60% are diverse, the very same makeup enthusiasts we aim to serve, and I believe it gives us a huge advantage. And that's different. That's a differentiator from the norm in the cosmetics industry, isn't it? That's right. I mean, I, I'd be a little surprised of how many men and how much older it is relative to kind of who you're serving. And, and um, so we've made a very conscious effort of not only do we want to represent who we're serving, but we also want the type of culture that can help engage uh, with with our consumers. So let's go back to your story, your personal leadership story. Can you tell us a story that illustrates a defining moment in your life? Uh, sure. So one, I, you know, I go all the way back to December of 1979. I was 14 years old at the time. Uh, as I mentioned, we're immigrant family, and while my parents worked really hard and you know, we saved and uh, finally were able to get a house. We weren't really getting ahead. And as many immigrants do, we got ahead by being entrepreneurs. So when I was 14 years old, uh, December of 79, uh, we sold our house and er took every penny we had, and we bought a small motel on Route 1 in Alexandria, Virginia. And so when I was 14, we moved out of our house, we moved into the manager's apartment of that of that motel, 
uh, and we were going to run it, my dad and I. And uh, and I remember at the time it was quite stressful because, you know, interest rates were over 18%. Every penny we had was in this property. The way we got it is it was struggling, so we had to kind of turn it around. And so it was a tough time to make that adjustment. But, you know, I look back fondly at that memory really for two reasons. Every major door that's ever been opened for me really goes back to those the, that initial motel experience. It made me appreciate my education at Duke so much better. I remember applying to the business school when I was an undergrad. Uh, the dean at the time said, you don't have business experience. My, my ability to say what I learned between the ages of 14 and my mid-20s in terms of uh, our business ex- uh, experience there opened that door. I remember I went to Procter & Gamble, as I mentioned, um, it was uh, my name was on a, a list for marketing internships. I knew nothing about marketing yet. When I started talking about the motels, how we priced, how we differentiated each room, what we used to do, there were such rich marketing examples that I got that. Uh, years later, when I made the switch from large CPG companies to private equity-backed mid-market growth companies, being able to go back and talk about kind of those entrepreneurial roots I had in the motels, I think got me my first CEO position. So one was every door really went back to that definitive experience when we first started the motels. But more importantly, so much of what I learned from there. And I think, you know, it was probably the richest learning experience kind of next to my dad, kind of learning how we operated this business. I'd I'd say, you know, P&G was a great training ground, but I tell people all the time, everything I know about cash flow, economic profit, how you treat people, came from those early days in the motels, and I've been able to take many of those skills to much larger scale businesses and have them operate better because of that. So what was seemed at the time a really rough experience, uh, you know, I really cherish even to this day. So let's look at the 14 or even the 18-year-old you. Did you expect Nan to do what you're doing now? Oh, no. I had no idea. I, I think I... You know, was always curious and open to learning, and that was kind of my passion. I first, when I came out of Duke undergrad, I went to the Agency for National Development. I thought I was going to go into international development. Uh, in fact, much of my business school, uh, I concentrated more on the finance side, thinking I was going to go work at the World Bank. If it wasn't for that uh, closed list for PNG when an interview, I didn't even know what PNG was when they put me on that list. Uh, it was a complete change relative to but I did an internship I, I loved I loved consumer brands and packaged goods and loved my experience decided to go back and you know and since then I think I've now 25 years I've, I've worked on you know brands that you use every day in pretty much every major category and I absolutely love it what I love in that story too is illustrates the difference between prep and planning right because so many um, high achievers are also planners but I think planning is going towards when you have that end goal in mind and you know you're planning towards it. But most of the time, we're in the prep mode. So when you were in, working with your dad as a 14-year-old, you were actually in prep mode. Oh, that's right. And in fact, I tell you, I'm still in prep mode. I, I would tell you that's actually one of the real joys of constantly learning. I'm, I'm in a business that, you know, e-commerce is still a central element of our business model where we take new products, we put them on e-commerce in our own stores, and the best thing is not necessarily getting right the first time, but learning from our community and having them involved in how we develop products and the level of engagement. I mean, I think some of our best examples of we'll put something online, it, it you know, we'll get feedback. The consumers didn't like the alcohol and the feel in it. Uh, we did a micellar water. Uh, we can reformulate that product in about a week. When we reintroduce it, we send 
the new product with a handwritten note from the head of our R&D to every single consumer who left us a review saying, thank you for your feedback. Here's what we heard. Please try the new product. The level of engagement that creates. So I would say back to prep mode. I, I don't think I'll ever be out of prep mode because I, I love the entire process of learning and trying new things and seeing what's working and, and how we, I mean, it's so central to our business model. And what you were saying there is illustrates this concept of co-creation with your customers. Like we tend to think in 10, 20, 30 years ago, it's you come to the market with a perfect product and it's hard to change that. What I'm hearing you say is you're actually creating, co-creating with your customers. You had shared some amazing statistics about the number of reviews that is on that Oh, online yeah. website. Yeah, what, so what on elfcosmetics.com, we have over 130,000 reviews. And for perspective, that's about 20 times more than I think the next highest for any type of cosmetics brand. And it, and it really speaks to this level of engagement our consumers have with the brand that they'll go, they'll buy, they'll put the reviews on and, and we respond to every single one where we really thank them for it, especially the ones where they didn't like something and, um, and I think it's always been a critical part of our uh, dialogue that we have with our consumers. And as you say, kind of the co-creation of being very open to it's it's not our brand. It's the community's brand and, and their ability to shape it, kind of promote it, uh, drive it is, is, is really a lot of what we're about. So on this idea of learning and growing and being in comfortable prep mode, which is actually a consistent theme I see in champions and leaders, People who know how to how to keep on winning. Something I've noticed about you is you make for a very good mentor. And when people someone is a good mentor, somewhere along the way, they've had good mentors. So can you share about a story about a mentor that you've had? And sure, I've had so many great mentors. I'm I'm really blessed that way, and uh, people who took an interest in me that I felt I could learn from. Um, you know, I remember when I was um, at P&G, uh, I was a brand manager, and I noticed in one of the really big meetings there was somebody who was really insightful, and I didn't know who it was, and but I noticed everybody else was fairly deferential to him. So I asked, who is that? And at the time, it was uh, his name was Franco Spadini. He was the head of R&D for all of beauty care. And usually through functional lines, one doesn't cross them and kind of talks. I went to Frank and I said, hey, I'd love to get advice. I want to take you through what my brand vision is on Pantene. And I think I was the only brand manager that ever kind of approached him and uh, ended up being such a great mentor. Cause, and, and it was a two-way street because he could tell me so much. And I learned so much about R&D through his lens and all the experiences he had. He was part of the team that kind of created Tide with Bleach many years ago and some really, really big products. And then in turn, I could tell him, things from the consumer and marketing lens. And so, you know, I think, gosh, I've had dozens of mentors over the years that really I learned a ton from, that I really valued. And, you know, often some of the best ones weren't necessarily in your direct line or even in your own field. And, um, you know, another great example is A.G. Laffley when he came back from Asia was running beauty care. Uh, Ended up being a terrific mentor for me in terms of what I was able to learn on beliefs and values and how you looked at consumers. One of my favorite favorite things was, you know, he, he took an afternoon, I think soon after he became CEO, a really tumultuous time for P&G, and he walked stores with me. And it was, uh, we had some one-on-one time, and he wanted to just get in stores and talk about what we were seeing and get my perspective on some of the different products as well as how he looked at, you know, 
consumers and categories and which ones were organized right, which ones weren't. And I mean, I learned more in that afternoon, I think, than I did in, you know, one of the colleges within P&G. So, so it, for a lot of our listeners, I know one question they have is, is around mentorship. How do you find a mentor and who makes for an effective mentor? And it's not position or title. It's actually a particular mindset. What I love in your two stories, one with um, the first mentor, Frank, is how you approached him. It wasn't, will you be my mentor? You actually approached him from a point of vulnerability saying, I'm, I'm seeking your advice, your wisdom, because here's what I don't know. And that's so effective. And the second one with A.G. Lafley was what made him an effective mentor. What The effective mentors in our lives are those who are willing to spend the time with us and also seek out our thoughts and our opinions, just as he was walking the stores and wanting to hear how you thought about things. That's right. It's really, really powerful. Um, so tell us a little bit more about Elf and why you can't wait to get to work. Oh my gosh, I love, I love Elf. And, you know, I think first of all, you know, it's a company we've really built. So out of 390 employees, we've hired 367 of them. So we've handpicked just about everyone in the company. So the thing that probably makes me most excited to go into work are the people that I work with. Uh, they, you know, we tend to hire from blue chip environments. People want to move at a faster pace and we put them in this high performance team culture where we give each other lots of feedback. We have this incredible system of, you know, encouraging healthy conflict and mutual accountability. And it just makes for a very vibrant culture where, I mean, if all I did was go into work and interact with, with all of our employees, um, it would be, it'd be a great day. But in addition to that, I, we have a real mission in our company to make luxurious beauty accessible. So we take things that, you know, for many consumers are unattainable, great beauty products that they love, but are priced $40, $50. And, you know, our average selling price is $3.50. So that passion of being able to take things that our consumers love or be interested in and making them available and just see the passion that it generates amongst our consumers. Um, it also really, really, really drives me. And certainly, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly competitive from a standpoint of winning the market and always loving kind of the results and what we're doing and what we're building and, you know, really proud of, of that. And, and so, um, and then, you know, I'd say the last thing is it's a culture where you're constantly trying things and constantly learning things. So no, no two days are ever the same because you're, you're, and the appetite of the entire organization to learn and try makes it a really exciting place to be. And what I'm hearing there is the mission, because we all respond to meaning, and that mission of enabling consumers to access um, these products without compromising the quality at a price point that they can afford, and to the team that you're with, the people that we surround ourselves with. Coach K always talks about make sure you get on the right bus. Right. You know, the right people, the right bus with those similar values. Um, so with that team, I mean, your team is growing. What do you look for in your team members? Yeah, we, we look for, um, you know, the fit with our culture. So everyone we hire, we're a fast-growing company, we've got a good reputation. So we get a lot of people interested in joining the team. And so many of them have really great credentials in terms of what they've been able to accomplish. They come from blue chip backgrounds. So we really look for people, you know, where they've shown us that they can move at a faster pace, where they can fit our culture, where they're willing to challenge and uh, and grow with us. And those are the characteristics that really then fit kind of our overall 
uh, culture and while still promoting the diversity that we want. It's really kind of the glue that holds us together is this shared value system and this ability of you know people to be able to also grow just as a company does. You often talk about the power of stories as uh, a culture builder. You know, so when you have such diverse people in your organization, part of it is they're all individuals. How do you get them connected to this shared shared sense of something? Sure. So we do it through a number of rituals. And so just like um, an athlete will train a certain way and get good at something, we feel the same thing with our culture. We, we start first and foremost, we have a high-performance team framework where it really focuses on how you build really great relationships promoting healthy conflict and mutual accountability, and we take it seriously. We take everyone through kind of the framework. We we make sure people understand their preferences, that they're giving each other feedback, that we hold that. And then we do it through a series of other rituals, such as we get all of our employees together every couple of weeks, and we'll do a town hall, and we'll use stories of what worked, what didn't work, and it really kind of really binds the, everyone together in terms of the same narrative of what are we trying to do and incredible amounts of transparency just it fits our candor as we go through and then all the way down to little touches where we make sure the incentive systems really promote one team where we really focus on kind of each individual and their development um, so all that entire system works together but it's a series of rituals that really promote that culture of, of kind of one team. That's wonderful. I would like to pivot a bit to um, this idea of learning. And you had, there's, I think we can learn so much from failures mm -hmm. as well as we can learn from successes. And I know in, in your story, there is a particular moment where there's a Business Week article. Can you take us back to that Yeah, that goes that pretty story? far back. Sure. So the, the time was I was at P&G and I uh, was running the uh, bounty business, the paper towel business. And I was brought in for a turnaround. We're probably about a year into trying to turn that business around. And P&G had gone through a change in CEO from Dirk Yager to A.G. Laffley. Business Week wanted to come in and do a story on P&G. I'd done some media, so they weren't certainly not going to put AG up for an interview then. So they asked if I would do the interview. And I remember getting that Business Week article, and um, there's a front cover. It was about P&G. The inside flap said, you know, if you want to know what's wrong with P&G, uh, you don't have to look any further than the bounty business. And that was the business I was running. And the article then went on and you know, just talked about how messed up everything was. Um, and, you know, I remember getting that article and just feeling sick. I remember going up to A.G. Laffley's office and apologizing. But, you know, I'm sorry it was such a bad interview or it was such a negative piece. And, you know, he told me right away, don't worry about it. Nobody reads Business Week. Just stay focused. You have the right plan. Stay focused on that plan. Everything will be all right. And, you know, I was feeling good, okay for a few minutes till I drove home that evening and one of my neighbors was right by my fence. And, Tom looks at me and goes, Trang, that was a bad article. And uh, what a terrible article. And I was like, oh, my God, no, people do read Business Week. And, you know, the normal human instinct is I just wanted to kind of, you know, cuddle up and kind of go quietly. And the next emotion was I wanted to write Business Week and talk about all the things they got factually incorrect. And, but then most importantly is I stepped back and I thought of our broader team. And at that time, I think there was gosh, almost 7,000 people who worked on Bounty in one form or the other. And so I wrote instead that night a, a letter to uh, every single one of our people on Bounty and said Business Week article. And I basically said, look, my first instinct was I was really discouraged because I know how hard everyone's working. And I then wanted to challenge all the inaccuracies in the article. Yet at the same time, there were a number of things they got right. 
they, you know, we let our prices get out of hand. We didn't innovate fast enough. There, we, we forgot what the brand was. And it was a great opportunity for me to then put back in our, in our, both our strategy as well as our culture, the things we had to do and use it as a rallying cry for that organization. Um, and, you know, and it really came from a point of, if I was feeling that, I knew my colleagues were feeling that as well. And so instead of feeling sorry for ourselves, let's reinforce what we're going to go do and use that. And then we use that article almost every year we bring it back up and say what's the progress we're making against what we said remember that this article remember what they said and here's here's how we're doing and i'm happy to say about three years later you know we had taken bounty to record market share we'd grown it a few hundred million dollars over a hundred million after tax profit and really it kind of turned it around and it was a great rallying cry usually those moments where you have this big public <laughs> invisible uh you know looks like a failure and using that to rally the team and reinforce what we're all about and um so as painful as it was it ended up being a good thing and how you leverage that feedback in order to improve i see you and hear that in in how you are doing that with that continuous feedback and open feedback in the company that you're running now and seeing don't be afraid of feedback let's be open and let's be transparent with each other so we can all improve so our organization can collectively improve. It's beautiful. Thank you. So if you were um, giving advice to your 20-some-year-old self, what advice would you give? Gosh, my 21? You know, I, I would say um, don't be afraid to embrace those moments where things don't go well. Um, it, it, I think it, it takes an adjustment over time where you learn that and and to learn from every every opportunity that you get where something didn't well work well and and continue to kind of push forward, kind of be more fearless in that in that manner. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. My pleasure. As you think about today's episode, here's something to reflect on. Tarang shared how he overcame a difficult time at Elf. Think about how you face the obstacles in your life and what changes you can make to produce better outcomes. That's it for today's episode. Special thanks to Tanya Reardon, Richard Vargo, and Angela Moon for producing this episode, Teju Ajasa for the technical support, and Lucas Tischler for the music. See you again soon.